We've been doing a series, as you know, Life Lessons from the Holy Land. And uh, tonight I would like for us to derive uh, a practical application from, uh, well, it's a valley, actually, the Valley of Elah or the Elah Valley. And you're getting a look at it right now. Elah, by the way, is a Hebrew word, and it means terebinth or oak. It represents the tree, which is native to the area. You can see this kind of tree even there today. It's a valley, the Elah Valley, and quite a valley. It's wide. It's about, uh, oh, a half a mile across and quite level, bounded on either side by elevated hilly areas. It's really a good place for a military battle, and one, in fact, was taking place there uh, a number of years ago. The Elah Valley is close to Jerusalem, just a few miles to the southwest of Jerusalem, just a few miles west of Bethlehem, and also very close to a place, uh, perhaps you've heard of it, called Gath. Uh, someone came from there, and his name was Goliath of Gath, Gath being one of the Philistine cities. And so a key event took place here in this Elah Valley, some 3,000 years ago, and it has relevance for us today. We could read all about it because God has seen fit to preserve the record for us without error down to this very day, and it's contained in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I know you are very familiar with it. 1 Samuel chapter 17, it begins by talking about these Philistines. Now the Philistines, they're always there, always opposing Israel. They gathered their armies for battle. It was in this area. And verse 2, Saul, he was the then king of Israel. And the men of Israel were gathered and encamped, and here we go, in the valley of Elah. So you see the significance of the place. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side. See if you can visualize it valley in between, Philistines on the southern hillside. And it says the army of Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. So they were stationed to the north, one army on the northern hillside, one on the southern hillside, big valley separating the two armies. And verse 4 tells us there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Uh, The Hebrew word actually means a go-between. He's representing his people at this point as over against Israel. His name is Goliath. He's from Gath, as we mentioned. And his height was six cubits and a span. And if you did the math correctly, you would find out that he's tall, really, really big. In fact, he's about nine feet, nine inches tall, which would make him probably weigh about 600 pounds. Is this a biblical exaggeration? No, it ain't. It's fact. This is narrative literature that we are reading here. It's not poetry. It's not hyperbole. This is historical fact. This is the real deal. How do you get to be so big? I wish I knew. You know, some people posit that maybe this guy who was extraordinarily abnormally big had an abnormal thyroid or pituitary thing. What makes you big? I don't know what it is. One of those glands or something. Who knows? I mean, I don't know what it is. All I know is, look, I don't want to be tried, but the Bible says it. I believe it. 
That's all that's necessary. It's reliable what we're reading here. Well, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, it says in verse 5. And by the way, that is a good place to put the helmet. Helmet of bronze on the head. Why does it say that? Well, the point is to show us that in his most vulnerable areas, he was protected. He would not incur, that's what he thinks, an injury to the head because he's got a helmet on the head. And he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which translates to in excess of 125 pounds. So this was a big guy to carry that much armor around. He had bronze armor on his legs. Have you heard the term greaves? That's another term. Shin guards is what it was. He had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The guy's infantry. He's through and through infantry. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. It was not a weaver's beam. It was like a weaver's beam. In other words, it was huge. A, a, a weaver's beam is a big piece of wood which is part and parcel of a loom. That was the equivalent of the size of the shaft of the spear he carried. In fact, the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is over 15 pounds. And his shield bearer, he even had one of those, went before him. Well, he stood. Think about it. Right here in the Elah Valley. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. And boy, can you imagine what his voice must have sounded like. He said, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Do you think what he's about to say is a little bit of sarcasm? He said, am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? I think he's being sarcastic. Why are you coming to mess with little old useless insignificant me? I'm just a Philistine. Aren't you servants of Saul? Whoa. I think that's kind of what's going on. It's a loose paraphrase. But here's his challenge. It's a taunt. Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, we'll be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him... You shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So that's what's happening in the Elah Valley. You know what's at stake here? It really doesn't have much to do with Goliath. And it doesn't have much to do with the other side. It's a cosmic battle going on here. There's something going on behind the scenes. You see, here's what was thought in that day. Uh, this was a typical thing. Instead of uh, mass bloodshed between two armies, get two representatives from each army, and the victor uh, will lead his people in mastery of the, of the other people. And the victor, it was thought, is going to be the one who's given the victory by his God. See, they had a multiplicity of gods. Everyone had their community god. The Philistines had all kinds of gods. Israel had but one. And if the Philistine God prevailed, and they thought for sure he, they would, then they could subjugate Israel. So what's going on here is a contest, and what's at stake is the reputation of competing deities. You see what's going on? It's important here. Uh, you know what's going on? It's a battle between Satan and the true God. Yeah, even 3,000 years ago in the Elah Valley. Absolutely. 
And so this is what's really the scene behind the scenes. Now, verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. How would you like to have a leader like that? Then verse 12 begins with two words. Now, David, ah, and that just changes the whole tenor of what we're reading. Yeah, there's Goliath, and there's the Philistines, and there's the Israelites, and there's Saul. Now, David, ah, oh, we're going to get refreshed. It's not the first time we read about David, but it's the first time he's introduced here now into the mix, into the story. He's just one of eight brothers. His father, Jesse, from Bethlehem, just a few miles away, had eight sons. The three oldest were getting the glory of being in the army. They were engaging the Philistines in battle, you see. And that was a glorious thing to be part of the Israelite army. But little old David, the youngest, what was he doing? He was left back in Bethlehem taking care of dad's sheep. Not only that, he was a messenger boy. When dad said, do this, David did that. And dad did say on one occasion, David, do this. And the this was for David to carry some grain and some cheese to his brothers who are engaged in battle against the Philistines. Why was there a need for grain and cheese? Folks, the Israelite army in this day was volunteer army. And the volunteers were responsible for providing their own weapons and food. It's 40 days that's in view in this story. Goliath is taunting them day and night for 40 days. I think what's happening is they're running out of food. And so David's dad understands this and says, David, go and bring them grain and cheese. And he does. And in verse 23, it says, as he, David, talked with them, his brothers, behold, the champion the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. Does your Bible say that? And David heard them. Well, what's so unique about that? What do you mean David heard? Everyone heard them. This guy's screaming 80 times. Do the math. 40 days, day and night. Two times 40, 80 times. He's taunting them. But when the text says, and David heard them, oh. I think it's a reference not just to the physical capacity, his faculty, his auditory faculty. I think he heard in the sense that he accurately perceived the taunt. You see, here's how the great soldiers of Israel perceived Goliath's taunt in verse 26. Uh, excuse me, verse 25. The men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up, this is how they perceived it, to defy Israel. But look at how David perceived it. Verse 26, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Folks, that's just the difference of two verses, but that's a difference in worldview. That's a, like a major, Israel took it personally. He's coming to defy us. We can't deal with him. David said, he's not coming to defy you. He's coming to defy the armies of the living God. Because when you are adopted into the family of God, you're never alone in fighting life's battles. 
that's over. Even the giant-sized battles are not unilaterally yours. It's always, once you are redeemed, once you are saved, once you are born anew, once you confess sin and Jesus as sin-bearer for you, then we think of you as God and son or God and daughter, but we never think of you alone anymore. David heard it. David got it. David perceived correctly the taunt. It wasn't about Israel. It was about Israel's God. And so it says uh, that somehow David's words uh, fell upon the ears of King Saul, who summoned him. David got an audience with the king, and Saul said to David, we're in verse 33, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You're just a kid. You're, you're but a youth. And he has been a military man since his youth. And Saul was right. Therefore, he, he should have said, David, you're not the most suitable candidate to go up against Goliath. And then what should he have said? I'll go. You know why? He's the king. He's the leader. And not only that, he's tall. During his coronation, we read this as a description of his physicality in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 23. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. This king of Israel stood head and shoulders above the rest. Why are you sending this little kid, this youth with ruddy complexion? You're right. You go. You're the king. You're the leader. But no, he didn't. And so it says in verse 36, David says, King, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. They have those, believe it or not, in Israel. And and they're predators. So if you're a shepherd boy, you've got to fight them off lest they prey on the sheep. David developed his uh, repertoire of skills, not by going after uh, Goliath to begin with, but lions and bears. And, and he said, and this uncircumcised Philistine, you know what that means? It means this guy's not privy to the covenant. He's not part of the covenant. He's not an heir of the promises of God. He has no personal salvific connection to the Redeemer God. He's not part of the covenant. He's not married to him. He's not bound to him. He's not wedded to him. We are. And circumcision was a sign of the covenant, just as, oh, these who denied were baptized, were, 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 were making use of this marvelous sign of connectedness, belongingness, weddedness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an uncircumcised Philistine. He shall be like one of them, for he has defied. See, he says it again. He has defied not just the armies. He's defied the armies of the living God. Not Philistine gods made of plaster and ceramics and sun-dried baked mud. He's defied the armies of the living God. And so Saul was persuaded. What are you going to do? Someone has that passion, that conviction. You just got to get out of the way and behind him. And Saul did. So verse 40, David took his staff in his hand 
And he chose five smooth stones from the brook. What brook? Ah, in this valley of Elah, there is a brook that runs smack dab right down the middle. Well, the last time we went, I had asked people to take it by faith because it gets really dried up during the summer months. But most of the time, there's water in it. And, and whenever we go over there, people find where the brook is supposed to be anyway and help themselves <laughs> to uh, five smooth stones to bring them back so as to remember the, the spot. In other words, they steal stuff from Israel. <laughs> bring them back here to Texas. So he finds these uh, stones from the brook. He puts them in his shepherd's pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. His sling. When we were in Israel last, one of our guides gave us a demonstration of ancient slinging. It's not a slingshot like you would buy in maybe a hunting store today. It was uh, probably a piece of leather, uh, and attached to it would be two strings. And you would grab on, you, you would put the stone, and the stone could be two to three inches in diameter. Don't underestimate the forcefulness of it when properly released. So you, you, you'd put the stone in this le- leather piece. Two strings are attached to it. You'd grab onto them, wrapping them around your fingers. And you would do this thing. You'd get up lots of velocity. Then you'd go over your head like this. And then you would release one of the strings. Boom! And it could take off in excess of 100 miles an hour. And if you were good, ah, I know this is far-fetched. You could hit a giant right smack dab in the center of his forehead. He'd go down, boom. David hit him in the only unprotected spot on his head. Isn't that interesting? I wonder if that had anything to do with the sovereignty of his living God. So David does the sling thing. Now, verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you know, you come with me, to me with a sword, you got a spear, you got the javelin thing going on, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, but not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. David had assurance of victory. On what basis? It had to do with what he knew about God's purpose and intent. God's intention is to be made known to be revealed, to be glorified. It's God's purpose. It's his sovereign purpose to be known in all the earth. And David latched on to that. And he knew that since that was God's purpose, God would win the cosmic battle. He wouldn't let Dagon or Molech or one of the Canaanite gods or some idol win the day, carry the day. Because the Philistines would say, there is a God in Goth. <laughs> no, there is a God in Israel. It doesn't mean that he was just present in Israel. The Philistines said, we have gods who are present with us too. 
It means the God who is with Israel is the one true God, the living God, the God who hears, the God who is compassionate, the God who is concerned, the God who fights on behalf of his people, the God who is almighty, the one and only God. David knew this was about the glory of God. David knew it had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with Goliath. Goliath is taunting him. He's calling him names. He's making fun of him. He said, you treat me like a dog. You come to me with sticks. Who are you, kid? But that is public humiliation. There's all kinds of big guys, soldiers who are listening to you being reduced to a mass of nothingness. You talk about a a, a rejection message. But David said, that isn't about me. I'm not going to defend myself, nor will I crumble. This battle is about the glory of God. God will carry the day because he's not going to let people, even the Philistines whom he loves, he's not going to let the Philistines put their hope in a false god. He's going to give us the victory that all the earth may know. You know what David is saying? I'm going to be living proof today, aren't I, of a loving, almighty God in front of a watching world of Philistines. That was his assurance, a victory. It's God's stated purpose, you see. He said, the battle is the Lord's. What battle? The battle for his honor, the battle for his name, the battle for his own reputation. Don't you see? That's the cosmic battle. Satan wants God's name to be defamed and demeaned and devalued, but God will not have it. The battle, that battle is the Lord's. And if the Lord lays hold of a battle, the Lord will win it for his own name's sake. Don't you see? You know what that means for us? Something bad and something good. You want the bad stuff first? Yeah, let's get it over with. Here's the bad news. God's purpose is not to give us victory in all of our personal battles. It's not. So the next time you cry out, God, why don't you heal me of this or that? God, why don't you give me this job or that? God, why? The answer is because that's not his stated purpose, to give you victory in all of your personal battles. You know what God's stated purpose is? To use whatever life experience he chooses to let you go through for his glory. Now, if God chooses to be glorified through a divine healing, then he will divinely heal. If God chooses to be glorified through a miraculous, marvelous financial or other provision, then then that's what he will do. But be honest with me. Can't God be glorified when we're on empty? Can't God be glorified when we hurt? Can't God be glorified when we are afflicted physically? Can't God be glorified when we suffer economically? Can't God be glorified when we suffer one of the wounds of life and are really hurting and broken? Yeah, we can be living proof of a loving God to a watching world even then. Some of us do better that way. Can't we tell someone, I hurt? But I'm held by a loving God who's willing to hold you too. I hurt, but not without hope. I know when all this is over, he shall bring me forth. 
holy and blameless and beyond reproach. I hurt and I lack answers, specific answers to my specific travail. But I don't lack a relationship with a living Savior who has so captivated me that I trust him more each day. Which leads me to this. Does this mean God's an egomaniac? He's so concerned about his name and reputation that he's willing to let us go through all kinds of stuff just so that the light shines on him? No. But it's important that the light shine on him because he's the only one who could save. Could you save if you get that job? Could you save if you're free of that cancer? No, you can't. Those are your personal battles. God can surely assist, don't get me wrong. But even if you win those personal battles, it doesn't make you a savior. Therefore, you don't have to be the one who's high and lifted up. He has to be. He said, the Lord Jesus, he's the savior. He said, if, I'm, if I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. They don't have to be drawn to you or me. I can't save people, neither can you. I'm needing salvation. So are you. So is everyone. Therefore, they have to be introduced to the only one who saves, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And that's why the battle which he has joined is the battle for his name and honor and reputation. He has to be made known amongst this the, a world of competing false deities. He has to be known as the one and only true God. And he can do that through anything that comes our way. Here's the question. Will I let him and will you let him? Or will we, can I use a little bit of a Yiddish word, will we kvetch? You know what it means to kvetch? It means to complain. Will I look like everybody else when I go through the turbulent times of life? Will I be indistinguishable in the way I'm navigating those rough waters? or will I be living proof of a loving God to a watching world even when I'm on empty? It's God's purpose. So in closing, don't fetch, we're closing. Here's the life lesson I'd like for us to attach to the Elah Valley. Here it is. God's reputation is at stake in your giant-sized battle. God's reputation is at stake in your giant-sized battle. He loves you. Look no further than the cross for proof. But what's most at stake when you and I face even giant-sized battles is the glory of Almighty God in it and through it and in spite of it. And that battle is the Lord's. Let your light so shine. Sometimes it's almost on the verge of being extinguished, isn't it? When, we, when we're under the oppressive circumstances of life. No, 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 don't, don't do that. Let your light so shine to such extent. That they, even Philistines, 
may see your good works and glorify you. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. And if our Father chooses to be glorified through adversity which comes our way, as much as through prosperity, let's say, have your way, O God. Because it's your reputation is at stake when you and I face the giant-sized challenges of life. It's not my personal battle. It's about the cosmic battle for the glory of God. This was good tonight. I really got a lot out of it. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you so much. Not that I was soliciting that in any way, shape, or form. If things are going good for you, a Christian, that's good. If things are going bad for you, a Christian, that's also good. Because the real battle is for the glory of God. So when things are not going good, what do you do? You cry out to him, don't you? You cling to him. You pray like never before. You weep. You're more sensitive to others. You value the fellowship. All kinds of things happen when things are not going well with us, isn't it? But the glory of God is what matters most. So, Lord Jesus, we do want to cooperate. We really do. We don't want to buck the system. We want to join the battle, the right one. It isn't for health and wealth and prosperity and all these superficial, shallow things of the day. <clears throat> the battle is for your glory, that you may be uplifted and recognized and distinguished from the crowd of pretenders to the throne for you alone save. Save your reputation, would you, Lord Jesus, even through one such as us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.